So this morning I'm going to read to you from Acts 20, verse 17 to the end of the chapter. So Acts 20, starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you, from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. May the Lord add blessing to this word. Hi, good morning. I'm going to be uh, sharing with you this morning. Um, preaching for me is always an awkward experience. <laughs> um, so uh, if you're new to this uh, fellowship, uh, just ask you not to, uh, not to, uh, what's the word, not to judge me too, too harshly or the whole entire congregation based upon what, <laughs> how, how this sermon goes this morning. 
Um, we have the joy of, uh, of accepting new members here this morning, and uh, a little bit later on we will also be um, finally ordaining Leighton <laughs> as our, one of our elders. Um, he has been working and acting as an elder for a long time, but this will just become official. Um, some of these things are just what we call, um, yeah, official, and, and just like becoming a member. It's just a, it's just a part of an official act that really um, defines, for the most part, things that have already happened. And um, so I'm just going to share this morning with you some thoughts uh, that I have on membership and on church governance regarding elders and leaders. Um, this is a topical sermon this morning. It is not expository. It's uh, much easier to preach expository. It was very hard to get through this. Um, so feel free to uh, converse with me afterwards if you need clarification or if I need some correction on anything. I'm totally open to that. Uh, so what does the Bible say about members? Well, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but first of all, the Bible word uses the word member to refer to a saint that is connected with the local body of Christ's followers in the book of Corinthians. Here, Paul refers to the selfish and backbiting and adulterous people as individually members of Christ's body. In so doing, he is creating an image. It is a symbol that is used to help the readers understand their need for cooperation and their, independent, or, and their dependence on Christ. In Rose City Church, we value membership even though it does carry somewhat of a stigma in today's world. When you consider that in our culture today, we define ourselves as members of a chat group with a membership in a political party and a membership at the gym. We get gold star membership at Costco. And I hope that AMA forgets to bill me my membership dues. And I'm stressing about my fundraising commitments because I'm a member of that sports team. Kind of you get the idea, right? I understand how there can be problems with church membership. In my cynical mind, memberships in today's culture, uh, I think, have two main motives. One is so that the entity offering the membership can get something from you. And two, so that the person receiving the membership is deceived into thinking that they're getting something out of it. <laughs> That's my cynicism. But here, in this church, we value membership because it is necessary. When entering into a commitment of membership, we do not ask of anything that the New Testament does not require of saints. But having a membership role here enables us to know who we are caring for. Throughout the New Testament, we are warned of wolves and strange doctrines and people who stir up strife. The saints are continuously encouraged to honor, support, and obey their elders, um, as well as fellowship with and support other saints. They receive correction and encouragement. They must be, uh, there must be some form of identifying where the body begins and where the body ends. We put no requirements on non-members, and the elders here are particularly concerned with protecting those whom have identified with our church body. We pray for them and we disciple them. As I contemplate many stories of early church life and events, I have come up with a few points of what it might have meant to a member of an early Christian church, uh, what it might have meant to them to be a member. 
I think of Stephen and Lydia and Nespus, Paphras. Um, think about Roman culture. Meditate on Corinth and Thessalonica for a while. And just think about what life was like. Put yourself in their footprint, in their foot, uh, in their shoes, sorry. <laughs> and then, uh, and just, I kind of came up with some points that are not necessarily directly from the Bible. But number one, as a Christian in those situations, you would say, I clearly identify as a follower of Christ. I obey Christ, and I adhere to his teachings. So we could dive into an extensive conversation of what obedience means and what those teachings were, but time constrains me this morning. We'll leave it at that. Um, Another interesting thing that a church member would have said back then when they became a member, they would have, in one way or another, they would have said, I agree to being persecuted. I recognize the risk of losing my house, my belongings, my family, my friends, and my status, and my life. Those are all risks of following Christ. Uh, Another one is, I share with other followers of Christ. I hold my personal material belongings loosely. I trust God to supply our needs. And fellowship and loyalty to other believers is, um, is very important. Another one would be, I regularly worship, fellowship, pray, and study Scripture together with others who are following Christ. Um, I understand and defend the gospel using Scripture. The gospel has touched me deeply and personally, and I cannot help but share it with others. And uh, lastly, I have here in this list, I look to the elders for direction and discipline. This is not a list directly pulled out of Scripture, but it is inferred in a lot of places. Uh, Some of them are direct. And it helps set the stage for understanding our environment and, and differentiating our environment from theirs and some of the confusion around the term member. When you see their situation, a membership with privileges hardly fits the bill. Other than the honor of identifying with Christ's suffering and the joy of uniting with other believers, there really isn't much to gain by being a follower of Christ in the early church. In Ephesians chapter 4, we read about how church members should relate to each other. Uh, In chapter 4, verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the status of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head in Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. To paraphrase this shortly, he says, We are to be equipped by our leaders until we grow up in unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, so that we are firm in our doctrine, and we are to speak truth and love with each other and to supply a need so that we build ourselves up in love. Tom Rayner wrote a book. It's called I Am a Church Member. 
And I encourage you to take time to read this book. There are several copies floating around here somewhere. Uh, one's probably in the library. Uh, I think Josh has one. Maybe Mark or Leighton might have another one in their house too. Um, if you don't have one, just come and ask us for a copy. And you could borrow it for a while. He outlines six scripturally backed commitments of church members. Now, becoming a church member might not be your thing. I've heard some reluctance, many of you, uh, in just small, short discussions here and there. But I'd like you to seriously consider what you are standing against. The Regans and the Wilsons have done honorably this morning by committing to um, eight things, I think was in the list of their uh, commitments. And if you um, get a chance, I don't know if we'll go over them, but uh, these commitments are found in, um, in the Bible, and they are commitments that early Christians would have committed to and supported by putting their livelihoods on the line. And... Uh, if you are reluctant to, to do that, I just would ask you to consider why you haven't yet. It's a very simple, unpainful process, and yet it gives us the confidence of knowing that you identify with this local body of believers in some sort of an official way. Um, In the passage we read earlier from Ephesians, we read about church leaders equipping the saints. I would like to switch gears here a little bit and talk about leadership. In our independent world, we often forget that church government was carefully and concisely mandated throughout the New Testament. Many times I have thought, uh, maybe I grew up believing this or I was taught this somewhere along the way, that the early church was a whole bunch of saints living their lives and doing whatever the Spirit led them to do and loving each other in peaceable ways while everyone followed the same teaching and somehow they just never struggled. They just loved Jesus so much that everything somehow kind of worked itself out. They were such a close-knit family that they didn't need any guidance or discipline. That, my dear friends, is far from the truth. I dare say that if, we had, if there had been no problems in the early church, then we probably wouldn't have any of the New Testament uh, all of the New Testament books were written, uh, I mean, of course, excepting the Gospels, all of the New Testament books were written by accepted apostles and elders with the, the purpose of correcting and explaining um, doctrine and, and, and uh, church um, issues. After Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1, this is very interesting. The very first thing that the Christians did after Jesus went up into heaven was they went away and they prayed in seclusion. And through the prayer, the first thing that the Holy Spirit led them to do was to replace a member of the new church governments. In Acts chapter 1, verse 24, he says, um, Luke says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place? So from that point on, the church was led and taught by the apostles, and God never left the early church without human governance and oversight. Why should we be reluctant to accept it now, I wonder? 
In Acts, after Luke tells us the story of Pentecost and ensuing persecution, he leads us right to the first early church story of membership discipline in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. After another story of identifying with Christ's sufferings and the joys of uniting with other believers, um, uh, sorry, got lost. <laughs> Uh, after another story of persecution in Acts chapter 6, he tells us about church problems again. And so the brothers picked up six deacons, and the apostles commissioned them. So let's read in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. And they said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom, we'll appoint, uh, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So other than the obvious, there are some notable things in this passage. The first one is that the apostles were serving tables at the beginning of this chapter. They were working hard. They were the first servants of the church. Another is that the saints, the brothers, the disciples were the ones who picked the deacons. But the apostles were the ones who commissioned them and gave them authority. We see that there was a trust between the apostles and the church brothers to be able to pick the right guys for the job, but also a recognition of the authority that the apostles had received to be able to appoint them. It could also be noted that this is the first sign of strife in the earlier church that may have been racial. After we begin to read about the elders and what they did, there are numerous references to forms of governments in developing doctrine and logistics. Most notably, I think, maybe is the system of sharing food and money throughout Judea during the famine, uh, as well as the Jerusalem Council, which resulted in a letter penned by the apostles authorizing Barnabas, Saul, Judas, and Silas as bearers of the true gospel, thereby rejecting others who were attempting uh, to teach false doctrines. So we cle see clearly in the first half of Acts that church governance is absolutely scriptural. It's ordained by God for understanding um, doctrine. It's ordained by God for discipline and for caring for each other. We must have church governance and organization. The Bible mandates it. The Bible exemplifies it. And the Bible clarifies it. In our day, we have people who do not want to have leaders. We do not want to submit to different forms of authority. We have been abused. We've been lied to. We've been rejected and stolen from and, and in many other ways mistreated and manipulated by leaders. As church members, we are asked to be submissive to our leaders and to love them and to bestow honor to them and pray for them. But how can we do that if they're not trustworthy and if we have hard and rebellious hearts? We also have many people who should be leaders but who are neglecting their calling. We would rather pursue our own interests and protect ourselves from the hassles of church leaderships. We truly are a very weak people. We don't want to follow but we want someone to help us with our problems. We don't want to lead, but we complain about the lack of good church leadership. We aren't that different from the early church. It is necessary, then, 
that we study what is biblical church elder. An obvious place to focus on the study of elders and church governance in general would be 1 Timothy. Here, Paul addresses many issues of the day that are still common discussions today. It is literally a textbook on church uh, leadership and church problems. If you have questions about church leadership and have not read this book in its entirety, I challenge you to do it. I do not in any way want to sideline 1 Timothy right now. Um, As I said, it's like a textbook. It's irreplaceable. But I would like this morning to take the next 10 minutes to study a little more on the application of this textbook. We are going to go to Acts chapter 20, verse 17 to 38. Uh, Timothy was working in in Ephesus, and um, he very well could have been one of the uh, elders that Paul was referring to here. I don't know, but... um, Um, In Acts chapter 20, Paul is giving a farewell address. He calls the elders together. So he is speaking specifically to elders. After having spent three years with them and working and toiling with them, he is saying goodbye to them. You will see that it is very implicit in this whole text. Uh, It's not said clearly, but Paul is saying implicitly, imitate me. Even though he never really literally says it right there, he does say that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. Um, by reading this text, we will see in real life what Paul continues to outline to Timothy uh, throughout the book of 1 Timothy and what is expected of all church elders even today. Let's read from Acts chapter 20. Uh, we'll start at verse 18 to 21. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, uh, sorry, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, he was imploring them to lead in their whole way of living. He says that he did not shrink back from serving and teaching the gospel from the moment that he came in uh, to Ephesus until it was his time to leave. He taught through every trial that he faced, uh, both in private and And in public places and without favoritism to anybody. In Acts uh, 20, uh, in verses 22 to 25, he says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So here he's reminding them to have no regard for their own lives, but that they should entrust themselves entirely to God's sovereign design, just as he is doing. Paul was determined to be obedient to God and willingly embraced persecution as part of following Christ and testifying to the gospel. 
Uh, verse 26 to 31. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So now he is begging them to maintain a clear conscience in regard to caring attentively for each one in the flock. He accepts that false teachings are going to come. But he reminds them clearly that it is their job as elders to work night and day with tears to protect and to admonish the flock. In this passage, he also reminds these elders that their job descriptions come from the Holy Spirit and that the flock that they are leading is not their own, but it belongs to God. And now, uh, in, verse 20, in verse 32, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the work of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul recognizes that after all that he has done, the only one who can keep them strong in faith is God himself. He basically tells these elders, he says, work your hearts out, give your lives away, but God and his grace alone builds up and keeps the brothers until the very end. I, uh, in verse 33, in verse, up to verse 35, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This charge, among uh, others, is, repeated, is a repeated theme several times throughout every exhortation to the elders. The elders in Ephesus and elders today are reminded to give generously. They are reminded to manage their finances very frugally. And Paul reminds them that it is more blessed to give than to receive. To Paul... This command had nothing to do with calculating a return based upon the erroneous teaching of sowing and reaping. Paul truly enjoyed, uh, or sorry, Paul truly received more joy in giving than receiving and gave out of having nothing. He gave sacrificially. He had compassion on the weak and he expected nothing material in return for his generosity. He was satisfied that his reward was Christ and Christ alone. After reading this short account, church members and potential church members, I ask you, if your elders imitated Paul this way, would you still be reluctant to submit to them? Elders and potential elders, I ask you, uh, can you, with a clear conscience, declare before God and the flock that these concepts encapsulate your goals and your motives in leading the local fellowship of believers? Do you follow God and in so doing live a life worth imitating. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, 
until 11, verse 1. He says, If you do everything to glorify God and do not seek your own advantage, but rather seek the good of the people around you, then you can ask God to, or then you can ask the people to imitate you. As we all ponder these questions, let us continue to another passage that also clarifies the practical nature of what biblical elders must emulate. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, uh, Christians are asked to consider the outcome of the leader's way of life. Uh, Verse 7 in Hebrews chapter 13 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So after having read about Stephen in Acts chapter 7 this week and, and contemplating about how Peter uh, probably died and noting that Paul was embracing his coming imprisonment and, possible, uh, and subsequent death in, in Acts chapter 20, I realized that what the writer here is asking of the saints, he is saying, do you see how they kept their faith through their lives? They suffered and they did not deny Christ but rather willingly they bore reproach. And the idea of reproach is uh, brought out more through the rest of Hebrews uh, 13 here and how they bore this reproach. Uh, But he says to the saints, he says, now you imitate that kind of faith that these elders showed to you. Um, I want you to note the past tense of this text. It is very possible that these leaders had already been killed for their faith in Christ. Um, the writer is stating emphatically that leaders are to be examples in their suffering. Church leaders have often been singled out by their opposers and have suffered in ways that others may not have had to suffer. Uh, As Leighton said to me the other day, the leaders in the book of Peter were often seen as lightning rods of the early church. And similarly today, this should be their calling. Leaders must not shy away from persecution, but as an example to the saints joyfully enter that path whenever the Lord presents it. Paul also puts forward this same idea when he's talking with Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In wrapping things up today, I would like to read from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. This is a well-known scripture regarding eldership. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We see here in Peter's exhortation many similar things that Paul shares with the Ephesians elders. But in Peter's text, we see some other things as well. Uh, Here, Peter humbly puts his own leadership on an equal level as with the other elders. 
He's not above them. Every passage in the New Testament speaks of the plurality of local elders. Most of them make reference to those who are laboring among them. He commands them to shepherd the flock, the flock that belongs to God, is not their own, um, and that's the flock that is among them, which means not in the next town. Uh, the text in Acts that speaks of Paul has overtones of urgent attentiveness and constant preaching and relentless sacrifice. In Peter's passage, it seems that he emphasizes more the character of a shepherd of taking care of a flock, which is patient and comforting as well as attentive. He says that elders should be willing and eager to exercise oversight. They ought not to be domineering, but rather lead by the example and practice mutual humility. Peter's style of eldership and Paul's style of eldership are complementary to each other. They're not opposing. In these overlapping and yet slightly contrasting requirements for elders, we see Christ's nature and both human nature reflected. Christ is our only true shepherd. There will be diversity among elders. He, uh, Jesus, is our example. He is patient and kind. Uh, he gave relentlessly all that he had to bring us. Uh, so he gave relentlessly everything that he had in order to bring us to the Father. Every elder must imitate Christ. And in so doing, they must be an exemplary brother in Christ for all of the other saints. Our human nature that, uh, that each elder has will allow him to live this out slightly different. But as we saw in Hebrews chapter 13, each elder will leave a testament of steadfast faith in Christ that others can follow. This is an ominous charge to an elder. They must follow Christ in such a way that all Christians could imitate their lives. In this text, Peter commands that each one in the body of Christ must clothe themselves with humility. In Ephesians, Paul commands us to submit to one another. Yet throughout the New Testament, there is also clear teaching that every church must have elders and deacons who lead by example. The parallel is also true. The Bible is very clear that in every church there must be saints who are submitting to leadership, honoring, obeying, and supporting them. The charge this morning to all the saints comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. It's also repeated in 1 Thessalonians 5, 25, and again in Ephesians 6, verse 19. Among other charges and commands that are given to, um, to the saints, this command is very, very simple. It says, pray for us. Um, we are weak. We are in need. We see our um, calling and recognize that we cannot fulfill this. And so we beg of you to pray for us. We need your help. This morning, the charge to Leighton, Mark, Larry, Josh, myself, along with our wives, is to lead all of the saints in this local flock in humility and by hard work with steadfast faith. As elders, we must be attentive to the saints, generous to all of you, 
and with diligence confront false teachings and lift up the weak. Christ is our chief shepherd. We must imitate him. As it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 21 to 23, it says, For to this you have been called, because, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It is a very high calling in Christ Jesus. I know my failings, and this study has only magnified my weaknesses in my own eyes. But God is the one who has called us to this good work, and he will bring it to perfection in him. In spite of all of our failings, he remains faithful. May God help us to be a unified body with saints and elders together that glorify him in word and attitude and in action. Amen. Let's stretch our voices and sing to our great God here again. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to me. How great Thou art. How great Thou art. Then sings my our God, so we should worship greatly. No song is too loud, no orchestra too stately, to hail the majesty, to hail the majesty of our King. So lift your voices loud as we sing. our God, so let our songs be endless. So awesome His ways, how could we comprehend them? So we will make it known to our kids, and we will sing about the gracious gifts you give. We will sing. 
Because our God is great, oh, great is our God, and we cannot contain it. We sing from our souls, affected by His greatness. His mercy covers all that He Showing His glory and His grace, we will sing Your praise and pour forth Your fame. We will bless Your name. Let everyone give thanks because our God is great. Will sing your praise and pour forth your fame. We will bless your name. Let everyone give thanks because our God is great. 